4, verse 6. So as you turn there to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, let us turn to the Lord one more time in a word of prayer as we commit our time to the Spirit of God to speak to us through His Word that He might remove any obstacles that we might have to rightly understanding and rightly applying this passage of Scripture and that we would live it out in our lives as we go out into the world and demonstrate the power of Christ. Let us pray. Father, what a glory it is for us to be here this morning. What a glory it is for us to be able to peer into your word, the revelation of yourself, the revelation of the Son, that is Jesus the Christ, The revelation of the Spirit of God as He works in the world around us. Father, we are not left without direction. We are not left without guidance. But You have given us Your Word in order to instruct us, encourage us, even to point us to a proper understanding of how you work in the world around us in order that we might have boldness and confidence even as we preach the gospel of Christ. And so, Father, would you be with us now as we seek to truly understand and apply your word. We're thankful for it, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning... We have been working through a series on the doctrine of God and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Our articles of faith have guided us through this study. And last week we began this short study on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. As we will consider these two aspects of the doctrine that we see in our articles of faith uh, this morning and last week. Next week, Lord willing, we'll begin to unpack and learn uh, more about the Lord Jesus Christ through the Gospel of Luke. But this morning, I want to look specifically at how the Spirit of God works in the salvation of men. Not only in calling us to Christ through conversion and even justification, but also His continued presence in us as He guides us, as He points us to Christ, even as He lives out the person and work of Christ in and through our lives to those around us. And so this morning, as we think about this work of the Spirit of God, just a reminder from last week, what we learned is that the Spirit of God is a person. That He is someone, not something. And that that spirit is the direct agent of God as he works out his plan and will on the earth. We saw last week in Genesis chapter 1 that the spirit of God was the direct agent of God who hovered over the face of the deep and brought creation out of nothing. And what we notice as we work through the scripture is that the Spirit is as active in the new creation as He was in the original creation. We see that certainly in our articles of faith, but we also see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 
17 down to chapter 4, verse 6. And so let us, just by way of remembrance, read together our articles on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit from our articles of faith. You can find them on the insert of your, in your bulletin. And then we'll work through this passage together in our time. So our articles of faith, article 5-1 says this concerning the Holy Spirit. It says, The eternal Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son is of the same substance and equal in power and glory with the Father and the Son. He is the only efficient agent in the application of redemption. He convicts men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, moves them to repentance, and regenerates them by His grace, enabling them to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Article 5-2, the Holy Spirit indwells all true believers, baptizing them into one body, of which Christ is the head. He is the divine comforter, intercessor, and advocate who empowers the believer for service. What we learn throughout Scripture is that the Spirit plays such an integral role in a person coming to Christ and in the believer continuing to walk with Christ And we see this in so many places throughout Scripture. And unfortunately, this morning, we do not have time to catalog all the verses where we see the Spirit of God directly involved in the process of salvation. But there is one text that I want for us to look at this morning and consider. Because this text in 2 Corinthians really highlights the Spirit's involvement in both the calling of an individual to salvation, as well as the continued presence of the Spirit in a believer's lives, transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And so let us read together 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 6, where we will focus our time together says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God... We do not lose hearts, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, 
who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What we see throughout this passage and throughout the context, which is so important for us to understand as we seek to rightly interpret this text, is that the Spirit of God is directly involved in calling a person to Christ as well as as they continue to walk in Christ and display His glory through them by the Spirit to all around. So those are the two points that I want to consider this morning. We'll work a bit backwards, considering verse, considering first verses 6 in chapter 4, and then verses 17 and 18 in chapter 3. But the first thing I want us to see this morning, if you're following along in the insert in your bulletin, is that the Holy Spirit transforms us initially. The Holy Spirit transforms us initially. Notice we see this in verse 6. It says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What we find in this text is that the Holy Spirit is the direct agent that renews our hearts and instills in us the knowledge of the Son and impresses upon us His saving benefits for all who believe. What we find throughout Scripture is that it's the Spirit that draws us to the Father. In John chapter 6, verse 44. It is the Spirit that brings new birth. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. It is the Spirit that produces confession of Christ in our hearts and in our mouths. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 and 1 John 4, 2. It is the Spirit of God that unites us to Christ by faith. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The Spirit of God, that is, the third person of the Trinity, is directly involved in abolishing our hardened hearts and causing us to walk in His ways. Jeremiah 31, 31. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Now, although this may not be explicit, that is to say that the Spirit isn't directly cited in verse 6 as being responsible for this trans transformation, it certainly is implied by the context in which we find chapter 4, verse 6. And so let's read that verse again. And then what I want to do is I want to work through the context of this passage so that we see that the Spirit is the one who is drawing unbelievers out of their unbelief, removing their hardness of heart, and causing them to see Jesus Christ for who He truly is. Notice it again in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There are three things that we must consider in order to interpret this verse correctly. And see the Spirit's involvement in bringing us to Christ. The first thing that we need to see is the connection that Paul makes 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, with what we considered last week in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Remember, I noted that last week we saw that it was the Spirit of God that was the direct agent of God hovering over creation and bringing into existence that which did not exist. It was the Spirit of God who was the one that was directly involved in bringing order out of chaos. And Paul uses the exact same words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, as Moses does in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Let me remind you of that verse in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, The implication is that the Spirit, as He was involved in the original creation, is also involved directly in the new creation. The Spirit of God is making in 2 Corinthians 4 through 6, through the Apostle Paul, the implication that God, by the Spirit, brings a knowledge of God to those who have no knowledge. Just as He brought creation into existence from no creation. That he creates something out of nothing in the hearts of those who trust Christ. The Spirit is the one who brings out of the one who has this chaotic and disordered understanding of God the Father and the Son. A perfectly reasonable and confident faith in the reality of Jesus being God in the flesh. Because of the work of creation, we, for the first time, see Christ in all of His splendor and glory. Because the Spirit has recreated our hearts to see that. The same Spirit who spoke the earth and all of creation into existence speaks into our hearts and gives us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we see him in, our, in that glory, we come to trust him for our salvation. And we know that this is what Paul is talking about, the relationship between the unbeliever and the believer, because secondly, Paul highlights these two distinct groups throughout this whole passage of Scripture. Notice he does this at the very beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 and 16, where he says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Notice the connection from verse 14 and verse 6 of chapter 4. That it is the Spirit, that is God, who leads Paul and the apostles in this triumphal procession and spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. 
Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Notice in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, that Paul has two kinds of people in mind. Those who are being saved and smelling the sweet aroma of Christ. And those who are perishing and therefore Christ to them is the aroma of death. But we see this distinction again in chapter 3 verses 12 through 16. Notice it with me. He says this, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, A veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Here, Paul uses a different illustration, but his point is the same. There are those, when they read the Old Covenant, a veil remains over their eyes and over their hearts. But there are those who, when they read the Old Covenant... The veil is removed and they see Christ and all the implications of the sacrificial system and all of the feast being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. The implication that Paul is making is that there are those who have the veil and therefore are not believing in Jesus as the Son, but then there are those who have the veil removed and are believing in the Son. Finally, we see this distinction between unbeliever and believer and the work of the Spirit in drawing unbelievers to the Father in our direct context in chapter 3 through 6 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Notice it with me. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul directly states that the unbelievers in the world are blinded by the God of this world. But when the Spirit comes and gives the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we see Him. And our blinders are removed and the veil is lifted and we are recreated in order that we might come to Christ in all of his glory and splendor. 
And so the distinction is clear. Paul is talking about those who are believing and those who are continuing in their unbelief and the work that the Spirit does in the hearts of those who believe. This is why, thirdly, Paul can preach the gospel unhindered and without compromise. And this is such an important point to see throughout this passage. What Paul rests in is the power of God through the Spirit to recreate hearts. You see, the power of the Spirit in verse 6 is the reason that Paul gives for not trying to improve on the gospel or to make the gospel more attractive. But instead, he can proclaim the gospel without hindrance because he is confident that the Spirit of God is doing his work in and throughout the world to call people to himself. Notice Paul makes this argument at the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. He says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. That is to say that we do, know, we do not lose heart because the gospel is being rejected by unbelievers. We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Here is the confidence that Paul has. The Spirit of God is working supernaturally to draw people to Christ. He is stripping veils and removing blinders, and therefore He is the direct and determining agent in those who believe by the power of God. And therefore, Paul does not have to be fancy in his articulation of the gospel. Paul never changed the gospel to make it more palatable or easy to swallow. You see, because Paul understood that exercising faith in Christ was not up to him, but that it was up to God by the Spirit. Now Paul says this in many other places. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I imagine you can just turn a few pages back. Page 897 in your pew Bible or your chair Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul says this. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And what we learn in the previous context of this 
of these verses is that that message of Christ crucified was foolishness to the Greeks and a hindrance to the Jews. He says, I came to you, I proclaim nothing but Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Verse 4, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of God, but in the power of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2 through 5. I'll read it for you. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in your Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We see throughout Paul's writings and through the rest of the New Testament and even into the Old that it is the power of God through the Spirit that transforms a person's heart and causes them to see Christ in all of His glory and splendor. And therefore, beloved, hear this, we never have to compromise on the gospel. In an age and culture that calls us, even a church culture that calls us to make the gospel a little bit easier to hear, because it's offensive to our inclusive culture, we need to be reminded that it's not about how we say the gospel. It's all about the Spirit of God attending those who come to believe. And therefore, the way that we know genuine faith is by proclaiming the gospel in all of its authenticity. You see, because the very same Spirit of Christ that was with Paul when he went out and declared the truth is the very same Spirit of God that goes with us. And so here's the reality, beloved, that we all must believe is that when you go out and preach the gospel, Preach it with the same kind of confidence that the Apostle Paul has in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. Because God is working, even as we saw last week, in the world around us. And He is calling people to Himself. And therefore, we can preach the message without, gospel, without compromise. We do not need to dumb down the gospel. We do not need to lessen its demands. But instead, we need to trust the Spirit of God to transform us in order that we might live up to those demands in our daily lives. Not because... 
we are constrained by some external code, but rather because now we live out of the eternal spirits. What we find in our text is that not only does the Spirit call us into a relationship with Christ, but the Holy Spirit sustains and nourishes that relationship as we look to Christ and reflect Him to the world. The second thing that is important for us to know concerning the Holy Spirit and salvation is that the Spirit calls us to Christ and He continues to point us to Christ in our sanctification. Just like the Spirit is the direct agent for conversion to Christ, so too He is the direct agent for our life in Christ as we desire to walk in the Spirit. What we learn in our text is that the Holy Spirit not only transforms us initially, but if you're following along in the insert in your bulletin, the Holy Spirit transforms us continually. Not only does He transform us initially, but He transforms us continually. Notice this with me in verses 17 and 18 in chapter 3. This is what He says. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit's. Notice how often the Spirit is cited in just these two verses. It's actually the focal point of this whole passage. And what the text is describing to us here is the direct involvement of the Spirit in our Christian lives as we desire to live for Christ and to serve Him faithfully. Now what I'd like to say at this point is that this, these two verses are so packed with significance that I think I could probably spend an entire month just expounding verses 17 and 18. But unfortunately, because I've made promises to all of you, and I intend to keep them this time, we can only focus on one aspect of what's happening here in verses 17 and 18, and we are seeking to understand what is the Spirit's role in our sanctification. What is the Spirit's role in our sanctification? And so let me do at the outset, let me, let me state the premise of what's happening here in verses 17 and 18, and then we'll seek to unpack it, okay? So here's my premise. What is the role of the Spirit in sanctification? Here it is. Our righteous actions which reflect the nature and glory of Christ, are no longer constrained by the external code of the law, but are compelled from within, 
as we identify with the realities of Christ written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that was a mouthful, so let me see if I can say it a little bit more simply. We, as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been transformed initially by the Spirit of God, and therefore are new creations, we, as Christians, no longer need rules and regulations to produce righteous behavior. But instead, we need to see Christ in all of His glory and embrace His Spirit within us by faith as we walk in Christ-likeness. Again, I know that was a little bit of a mouthful, so let me see if I can make it even simpler yet. In Christ... We are freed from the law, but compelled by the Spirit. In Christ, we are freed from the law, but compelled by the Spirit. Notice what he says in verse 17 of chapter 3. He says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is Freedom. That word freedom is eleutheria. Eleutheria. It sounds very Lord of the Rings esque. Eleutheria. And what it means is that we are free from external constraints. This word is connected to the idea of being imprisoned by something and then being set free from that which imprisoned us. And beloved, if we are in prison, then we are held there by shackles. There is nowhere we can go because we are chained to a wall or held by bars. You see, beloved, what keeps us in prison is not our willingness, but the concrete walls that surround us. And what Paul says here is that you are freed from those shackles. You are freed from those bars. You no longer live in a concrete cell in your Christian life. You see, because Christ, by the Spirit, has set you free from the law of sin and death so that you can now walk in Christ by the power of the Spirit, upholding the law because it is good and pleasing to us in whom the Spirit resides. Paul makes this argument again over in Galatians chapter 3, which you're going to have to go and read by yourself, possibly later this afternoon, because we don't have time to cover it this morning. But what we learn in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, is that in Christ we are no longer constrained by the external force and code of the law. We no longer live by rules imposed upon us from the outside. We live by the Spirit of Christ 
that dwells within us. Notice what Paul says again over in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. He says this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why then, beloved, why then, Christian, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. And what has value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh? It is the Spirit of God that resides within us. It's why Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, Look to Christ. Set your mind on Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ. For He is your salvation. Now, of course, we have to be careful here. When Paul says there is freedom in Christ... He is not saying that we are free to do whatever. He is not saying that since our sins are forgiven in Christ, we are free to sin without restraints. That is not a message that is in sync with the gospel whatsoever. Paul says later in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Romans chapter 6 verse 1, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. For do you not know that all who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death and were raised in the very same resurrection by the power of the Spirit, in order that we might walk in newness of life. Beloved, if you are a Christian here this morning, you no longer are conformed and confined by the Spirit. You are, or I'm sorry, by the law. You are free to live as Christ would live in and through you by the Spirit's. What he is saying is that by the Spirit, our actions are compelled from the inside out, not constrained from the outside in. And that our law, that is the governing principle which directs all of our behavior, is the person and work of Jesus Christ in us and through the Spirit. Notice he makes this argument in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're in... Colossians or Galatians or wherever you might be this morning after I cited all those verses, turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Paul says this. He says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on your hearts 
to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Here's what he's getting at. The Corinthians themselves were an an authentication, I'll get there, of the apostles' preaching ministry and a demonstration of the Spirit's power because their lives were being continually transformed by the Spirit. The law of God was no longer external to them. It was internal, written on their hearts. The Spirit of God came in and broke up that stony ground and wrote the will and desires of God upon their supple hearts. And this means, hear this, if you don't hear anything else I said this morning, if you've already checked out, please come back and hear this. What does this mean? It means, beloved, that our obedience to Christ is not something we must do. It's something we want to do. Now that is so subtle. And I want to repeat it just so we get it. It's on the insert in your bulletin in case you want to take it home and reflect on it. Brothers and sisters, our obedience to Christ is not something we must do. It's something we want to do. We live in Christ willingly, not under imposition. We are not prisoners to the law of God. We are freed by the power of the Spirit to live God's intention for our lives as those who delight in the law of God in our inner man. And of course, we still have the flesh who is trying to convince us that we are not free. That we must obey under constraints. But in every moment, when that flesh speaks up, we as believers must rebuke it. We must say we are no longer living under law but we are living under grace. We need to hear from the Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, where he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh. What is the Spirit calling us to here this morning? And I'll Wrap up with this. The Spirit's desire for us is to see Christ. The Spirit's desire for us is to embrace the work that Christ has done and continues to do in us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Which means that the gospel and its power does not fade. Like the, like the old covenant as Moses covered his face because the glory and splendor was coming to an end. No, the power of the gospel grows and grows and grows and grows. 
And in the believer, as they look to Jesus, the work of that spirit becomes more evident and more evident and more evident and more evident as they reject and deny the flesh and embrace who they are in Christ. This is the work of the Spirit in each one of those who believe. Not only does he call us to Christ, but he continually points us to Christ so that we might see all that Christ is and all that he has done for us. Let us pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your grace. Father, may we live as those who are freed to obey you with all our hearts, all our minds, all our souls, and all our strength. Father, may we look to the word as that which we have become now in Christ. As we think about the communion that we have, not only with Christ and what he's accomplished, but even with one another. Father, may we understand that that even is a work of the Spirit. And may we give free expression to the work of the Spirit in our lives. May we believe it. May we trust it. Father, would you do this work in and through us this morning, and would you impress upon us the glory of the gospel of Christ. It is in your name we pray. Amen.